From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Drop the elect, Joe Biden's president now, and we'll put Inauguration Day into historical context. For example, when the first U.S. president, George Washington, made way for John Adams in 1797, someone was watching closely. In Great Britain, King George III was fascinated by the peaceful transfer of power. He called Washington the greatest man in history. Then, how to survive an avalanche, or better yet, not be in one at all. And I was able to get my feet out and up and like struggle to get my arms and keep everything on top of the snow. And Lumineers co-founder Jeremiah Freights has a new solo piano album. Some of the songs have been haunting him for years. The largest source of support for Colorado Public Radio comes from members across our state. I'm from Denver. Aurora. Glenwood Springs. Grand Junction. Boulder. Minus Ranch. With your donation, you connect your city to nonprofit journalism, to inspiring stories, and you connect your community to a wide range of music that fills our daily life. These recent months have been tough for everyone, but month after month, donors continue to step up. Thank you for your support. This is our historic moment of crisis and challenge, and unity is the path forward. And we must meet this moment as the United States of America. If we do that, I guarantee you we will not fail. We have never, ever, ever, ever failed in America. When we've acted together, And so today, at this time, in this place, let's start afresh, all of us. Let's begin to listen to one another again, hear one another, see one another, show respect to one another. Politics doesn't have to be a raging fire, destroying everything in its path. Every disagreement doesn't have to be a cause for total war. And we must reject the culture in which facts themselves are manipulated and even manufactured. Joe Biden is now the president of the United States. On Inauguration Day, this is Colorado Matters. From CPR News and KRCC, I'm Ryan Warner. Biden becomes the country's 46th president. And we thought we'd begin with a look at some of the 45 who came before him. What can history tell us about the present? Jeremy Anderberg of Arvada is a book reviewer, and in 2016, he set out on a mission to read at least one biography of every U.S. president. He has completed that mission. Jeremy, welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. You know, we've seen with the recent violence at the Capitol and former President Trump's refusal to concede that the peaceful transition of power is not a given. Did you find a time in history that echoed this moment? You know, inaugurations have generally been a pretty tame affair. There have really only been a couple instances where that was not the case, and it wasn't really a matter of violence. So after Andrew Jackson was inaugurated, there was basically a huge kegger at the White House. There were 10 to 20,000 average Joes who just kind of partied and Uh, tore the house apart. 
Uh, but that was, you know, more of a party than a safety issue. Really, it was Lincoln's two inaugurations that were the most dangerous. So his first inauguration, he had to sneak into Washington at night and they were worried about his safety, but he did still give the address to a full crowd. Uh, and that again happened with his second inauguration as well, even though his vice president for that one, Andrew Johnson, uh, was drunk, even though it was morning. Uh, but generally, it's it's really been pretty tame. So this is very, very much unprecedented. Unprecedented, a word we've used a lot in the past year or so. Uh, Biden inherits a pandemic, a struggling economy, the realities of climate change, domestic terrorism, tensions with Iran. And those are just a, a few of the issues. Have other presidents, do you think, faced this many problems out of the gate? Certainly. Yeah. So obviously, you know, when Lincoln was inaugurated, uh, a number of states had already seceded. I mean, that's about as big a crisis as you can imagine. Uh, FDR, when he came into office, uh, was in the midst of the Great Depression and the building tensions of World War II were not quite simmering yet, but they were well on their way. Uh, so there were certainly, you know, other really tremendous crises to deal with, but this, this certainly ranks among the top few. Okay, so it stands out in your mind. Was there a time in history that has felt as politically divided as this one? I'm always interested in this question, Jeremy, because I think it's really easy to fall into the thinking that, you know, the, the time we're living in is the most divided. I, I know that not to necessarily be the case, right? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. So, you know, one of the things I was most curious about when I started this was, was wondering, you know, you already used the word how unprecedented is this, but that was kind of my wondering, are we, are we really this partisan all the time? And the answer really is we are more partisan than not. You know, the, the 80s and 90s were actually kind of a, a calmer period of time, and that's obviously kind of our recent memory. Uh, but huh. before that, you know, going all the way back to the founding was incredibly divided. The press has almost always been uh, incredibly partisan with, you know, newspapers and um, even going into to TV stations when that era came along. It's really been extremely bitter sort of the whole way through. And obviously, you know, America has not forgotten the Civil War, but I think we forget the reality of that, that you had, you know, men from Virginia, literally fighting in battlefields, men from Maryland. And even though the last couple of weeks makes that a little easier to comprehend, I think we, we do forget that there really was a civil war in our country. And that's about uh, as bitter and partisan as it gets, obviously. Yeah. And I think that there are some who have wondered, I wonder if you're among them, are we on the precipice of a civil war? Is that how divided the country is right now? Did did anything about what you read help you answer that question or find peace or uh, unsettle you further? Sure. Yeah. So really, you know, in general, the, the Grand Project actually gave me more hope about America. There are always times where democracy sort of bends and it, you know, very close to the breaking point in the Civil War, but ultimately uh, mm. democracy and, and goodness did prevail. And now we're kind of seeing that again. You know, there was a push to delegitimize the election. 
but but ultimately, uh, our better angels won out. Our system won out, and really, it, it's kind of a testament to both the precedents that were set by early administrations of George Washington and John Ad- John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. Um, so you know, at, at this point, I I don't see another another civil war on the precipice. Uh, of course, anything can happen. You know, again, it it seems. Uh, a little more believable just in the last few weeks with what happened in Washington. But uh, ultimately, you know, even even Mitch McConnell has said, hey, this is uh, a legitimate election and it's time for everyone to move on. And Trump did leave D.C. this morning. And it's so, you know, it seems like he finally at the very last minute has conceded that uh, that this is the direction that America is going in. Were there examples uh, of past presidents being able to unite a divided country. I mean, obviously, the Civil War and the aftermath becomes an answer to many of these questions. Uh, But I wonder if you might speak to some specifics. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that I thought about was Gerald Ford. After Richard Nixon resigned, there was very little trust in government, very little trust in the presidency. And Ford had to come in as a guy who was unelected. Remember, he was appointed as vice president after Spiro Agnew resigned. So he had to come in and heal the nation. And one of the things that he did was quickly pardon Nixon, which uh, was very debated at the time. It was very much a heated decision. And it, it still is to this day. And so he was quick to forgive, certainly. And that was part of moving on. And he was also a pretty uh, level-headed guy, wasn't a big personality. I think the nation needed just kind of a tamer person in office for the healing to happen. And really the same thing happened with Lincoln. So after the Civil War, he was uh, his plan, at least, was to be really quick to forgive the South and to admit them back into the Union. And that was going to cause a lot of tension if he had lived and it, it sort of still did anyways. But, you know, one of the hard realities is that quick forgiveness is often uh, a, a quick way to healing. So I'm not sure what mm. that looks like, uh, but it is certainly something to be considered as we move forward. It's Inauguration Day. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are speaking with Jeremy Anderberg of Arvada. He's a book reviewer, and back in 2016, he set a goal for himself to read at least one biography of every U.S. president. And we thought we'd invite him onto the show to share a little perspective on the history of the presidency and other tumultuous times in the United States. You know, President Trump was a norm buster, uh, and that made his supporters joyous and his critics terrified. Was there another norm buster you ran across? You know, what's pretty amazing is that uh, the the precedents that George Washington set uh, were very quickly set in stone. You know, the, uh, the, excuse me, the amendment um, that didn't allow a president to run for more than two terms wasn't enacted until the 50s. Uh, so FDR was certainly a norm buster in running mm. for the presidency four times. That was uh, very unheard of, and he got a ton of flack for that. FDR also tried to pack the Supreme Court, you know, so he, he tried to bust the norm. That one didn't work, obviously. 
And so really with the presidency and the norms, it's kind of a slow build. So you have a president sort of chipping away and, and increasing the power of the presidency. Uh, happened in a big way under George Bush when he went to war and sort of enacted some new war powers after 9-11. And that obviously did not go very well. So, you know, in some cases that, that norm busting works out, but in a lot of cases it, it doesn't. And that's uh, certainly what I've seen to be the, the biggest difference with Trump is just his uh, disdain for, for the office and, and for the, you know, the dignity and, and the, the splendor of it, I guess. The Trump administration prided itself on putting America first, withdrawing from international organizations and agreements. Uh, President Biden, meanwhile, has promised the world community that the U.S. is back, to quote his words. Uh, Where do such foreign policy seesaws show up elsewhere in our history? I mean, this is not this is this was not the first moment of America first. I mean, maybe by different words. Yeah, you know, it it tends to happen uh, when there's a transition from one party to another. Uh, There's almost always a bigger seesaw. So uh, in the 1920s, uh, when you went uh, from Coolidge to Hoover and then to FDR, uh, 1932, he was elected. Hoover was was very much America first. Uh, that era of the 20s and early 30s was kind of an isolationist period, which was just another way of saying America first. Uh, after mm-hmm. World War One, there was a big desire to not get involved in foreign affairs. And then uh, 1932, FDR takes over and sort of inevitably drawn into World War II, right? But it took a while and there was a lot of pushback. And so when you're going between parties, there's certainly always this this seesaw. And I, I do believe that the Biden will get us back into these international agreements and will at least try to kind of restore America's place as a, a team leader versus just an, an America first philosophy, which was really, you know, something that Trump had touted all along and actually kind of made happen. So we'll see. We'll see where it goes from here for the next four, four plus years. President Biden named Senator Kamala Harris as his vice president and promised that their relationship would be like a partnership and that she would have a significant role to play in policy. Can you think of other presidents and veeps for whom that kind of relationship was true? Yeah, there really have not been many. It's kind of a a modern phenomenon that vice presidents have had a little little more sway. So, you know, I think of, of Harry Truman. We remember him as a great you know, World War II leader and the post-World War II era, but he didn't know anything about World War II. He didn't know about the bomb. FDR uh, did not keep him in the loop at all. So I've always found Truman to be an incredible example of leadership, uh, that he was able to come in with knowing nothing. But to get to your question, you know, uh, Biden sort of did this himself under uh, Obama. He was reluctant to become vice president because he was wary of the role he would have. And actually, you know, a funny story, his wife had to tell him to grow up and he finally accepted. Uh, and, and he had a pretty consequential <laughs> vice presidency and Obama uh, very much considered him a partner. And so I think he's taking cues from that relationship. And just given his age, I have to imagine that he's seeing Kamala as a sort of natural uh, successor to him, whether that's in four or eight years, however many uh, years that ends up being. 
Who was your favorite president before this project, and did it change after? That's a great question. So beforehand, it probably would have been Theodore Roosevelt, you know, the the strenuous guy. He was a big time reader. He loved the outdoors, uh, and then you know I read about him, and he's still very compelling. But you read about his his supernatural energy, and it's just hard to relate to. Honestly, reading about the guy just made me tired. Uh, so afterwards, I came away really liking his successor, uh, William Howard Taft, who had a, a pretty mediocre presidency, but was just a really lovable guy who wanted to be a Supreme Court justice his whole life, but was sort of pushed into the presidency by by Teddy Roosevelt and by uh, his own wife. And he won election on Roosevelt's coattails and had just a miserable four years. So then he was uh, out of office, lost in 1912 to Woodrow Wilson, had a bit of a break. And then finally, uh, Warren Harding appointed him to be the chief justice of the Supreme Court. And he loved it. He said those were the best years of his life. And I just kind of so you know felt bad for the guy, but also was sort of inspired, you know, to to go for what you like and not just the the top rung on the ladder. Taft knew that he wanted to be a justice and he ultimately got there. And that was a really kind of inspiring story. I mean, I think that he's the only president to also have served on the Supreme Court, right? Uh, I believe that is correct. Yeah, I'm not. There may have been someone early no. on, but I, I believe you're correct. Yeah. Okay. Well, Jeremy, thank you so much for sharing this uh, adventure, presidential adventure with us. It's been a real pleasure for me too, Ryan. Thank you. Jeremy Anderberg of Arvada is a book reviewer and managing editor for The Art of Manliness. It's a lifestyle website and podcast. You can check out his literary newsletter, Read More Books, at readmorebooks.co. People have triggered at least 80 avalanches in the state so far this year, and it's only January. None has been fatal, but in December, four people died in slides in Colorado. Experts say the pandemic has pushed more people into the backcountry. Plus, snow conditions right now compound the risk. Snowboarder Maurice Curvin of Denver started taking backcountry safety courses seven years ago, and that training may have saved his life when he got caught in an avalanche near Loveland Pass, which he captured on video. Hi, Maurice. Hi, how's it going today? Doing okay. I see that you join us from your car. Have you just been snowboarding? Yeah, I'm actually uh, near Loveland Ski Area right now. Um, I'm actually not in my own car. This is my friend's car. So this is not far from where this avalanche was, correct? We're probably a 15-minute drive and a two-hour hike from that location. This has not scared you enough to stop snowboarding in the backcountry? Um, not, not stop snowboarding, but I've definitely um, taken sight of the risk and I'm mitigating that by staying in much safer terrain, much mellower terrain. I haven't really been much above treeline since the avalanche. Describe the area where this avalanche occurred and, and how you got there. So me and my buddy Robbie started hiking on the top of Loveland Pass towards the west. And it's about a two-mile hike from the top of Loveland Pass. Decent amount of up and down vertical along the ridgeline. The slope that we skied was southeast facing. and had an average angle between 35 and 45 degrees. So the perfect degree slope for avalanche terrain. And... Um, 
we had talked about it a lot beforehand, you know, the risk that it could slide and that if it did slide, it would be fairly large in scale. What did your training prepare you to do specifically beyond just checking conditions? Well, one thing it really helped me with was to remain calm in the situation and to assess it as it was happening and make quick decisions. That was very key. And in that, I was... um, I originally wanted to let the slide go below me. And uh, in the video, you can see that I look over my right shoulder. This is me looking to see where the avalanche is breaking and it actually propagated above me. At that point, I decided my best option is to go down and stay to the left. In the video, it doesn't look like I try to stay left very much, but it takes all of my effort just to stay in fall line and not get swept into the goalie. So this is happening in real time. You're assessing the fall and where you'll be in it. I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, I'm clean. I'm safe, I'm safe. At the end of the video, you thank your backpack, Maurice. And the, the loud noise we heard is actually the sound of you releasing an airbag. Yes. Why do you thank your backpack? Um, because at the point when I pull the pack is when I feel the snow rising above my knees and waist. And it's starting to suck me under. And I'm feeling like the turbulent flow of the snow underneath me. There's probably seven to eight feet of moving snow below me. And so when I pulled the pack, I noticeably felt it hold me up on the snow and I was able to get my feet out and up and like struggle to get my arms and keep everything on top of the snow. That is the effect of the airbag deploying. Exactly. So essentially the airbag increases your volume and makes your whole body as one less dense. So if this were water, it would help you float. If it's snow, it's helping you stay steady, upright. Yeah, it's essentially the same idea as water. It helps you float, essentially. What was going through your head other than to try your best to avoid it in its most lethal way? So the first thing was stay afloat. And when that went well, the next thing was don't break your femur. Don't break your femur. Tell me about that. Well, I just mainly I didn't want to break like any leg bones or anything below the waist because... um, we were still like in it for the rest of the day. We had to hike up another ridge to ski back down to the vehicles. And so at that point, if you you know, hurt your legs or anything below the waist, you're looking for search and rescue or your buddy dragging you out the valley or something like that. And that's uh, not something I'm really too keen on. Mm. Um, my arms were much less of a concern to me. I've broken arms and dislocated shoulders and done all, all that kind of stuff. And um, if any of that were to happen, it would be a simple walkout and we'd be back to the car with no with no problem. When you say you didn't want to break a femur, in other words, you didn't want the avalanche to snap you in two in some ways. Essentially, yes. Yeah, uh-huh. What other sort of equipment, protective equipment did you have? So my next line of protective equipment beyond the airbag was my beacon. And so that's a rescue device that's used. My buddy had one as well, and they were both on and active. Um, basically, if I were to get buried or go under and he could not see like my hand sticking out of the snow or any evidence of where I was at, he would go to the last point where he saw me. And from there, use his beacon to search for my beacon 
which at a certain distance would pick me up and take him directly to me where he'd be, then be able to dig me out. Um, the guy I was riding with is a super solid guy. I mean, he was down really quick. We were on radios, which is the next line of defense. Um, radios, communication is everything in the backcountry. If you can call in and say that you're okay and whatnot, you can help minimize the risk that your ski partner may put themselves at to get to you quicker. And then you can let all the other parties in the group know that, yeah, you are okay. And then beyond that, you know, my own personal shovel and probe, if I was partially buried and I was able to get to my shovel, I could dig myself out. Um, other than that, I have a whole bunch of snow science tools. I have a cornice cutting rope that cuts cornices and allows you to push them over the edge and test slopes. I have an ice saw that helps you dig pits and analyze snowpack and understand that kind of stuff. I have a snow study kit with a snow metric meter on it or in it. It's like a little card that has um, different sized squares on it that allows you to analyze the crystal structure under a microscope, which is also in the kit. So, I mean, gear is an evolution. It always keeps growing. So we reached out to the Colorado Avalanche Information Center for insight into this slide and Director Ethan Green says this kind of avalanche is pretty common. He's really lucky he didn't get hurt. The avalanche, even though it was definitely a life-threatening situation, um, it was relatively small. You can see in the debris, it's relatively shallow. Green says it's hard to know how many people survive avalanches because not every slide gets reported. Uh, Maurice, we also asked Green about what else you might have done that day you were in the avalanche. I think the main thing that he could have done differently is to choose a slope that was less likely to avalanche. You know, what we highlighted in the forecast that day was slopes over 30 degrees that face north through east, especially near and above tree line. And this slope was over 30 degrees above tree line and east facing. What do you think? Um, I agree with pretty much everything he said, except for the aspect. The aspect was southeast, um, but I don't want to like comment on that too much because the forecast also included that southeast aspect so i'll give that to him there um other than that you know pretty much everything he said was very accurate and we had considered skiing back down the line of our boot pack which was a much more stable route and i almost guarantee with how thin the snowpack there was it wouldn't have um, been a problem I also agree with him that the slide was relatively small in comparison to what it could have been for the slope that it was. The shallow piles at the bottom, I don't know where he's getting his information on that necessarily because me and my buddy scaled them at, you know, on the small end, 20 feet deep to like 30 to 40 feet deep on the large end. So I, the takeaway, I think, for you, and you reflected this at the beginning of our conversation, is that if you had to do this over again, you might have chosen a different a different spot. Yeah, a different yeah. route, a more stable, more safe, less steep route. How much of your survival do you attribute to your training and your equipment versus dumb luck? Um, I would say it was probably 60% training and 60% luck, or 40% luck, sorry. 40%. <laughs> you didn't know you'd be doing math live on the air. All right, so there's a luck that's a part of it. Why is backcountry skiing, snowboarding in your case, why is it worth the risk, do you think? Um, for me, it's my passion and I really enjoy it. And there's like, honestly, nothing else I would rather be doing. Today, I probably skied 60 or 70 days in a row with two days break. I think I took a day break on the 
12th of December and on the 12th of January. Ironically, it fell on the same day, but. (laughs) Why did you decide to go public with your experience in the avalanche? You know, I I think as a journalist, my concern, Maurice, is that we glorify people who take risks. And and I I understand that fully. It wasn't to like self-glorify myself. You know, I, I definitely knew that it would be seen and people would look at it and whatnot. Um, and if you read my like original posts and whatnot, it's very, hey, this is what happened today. We made a bad decision. Here's the video. Hope you enjoy. Hope you can learn from this. Hope you can learn from this. That's your goal. Yeah, essentially. I mean, you know, I don't I don't want to like condone anybody making my risk choices and my risk assessments. But um, I definitely want people to go out into the backcountry and enjoy themselves and, you know, be aware of the risks and be aware of avalanches and use that knowledge to be able to manage the risk so that they're comfortable riding in the train that they're riding in. Does the avalanche replay in your mind? Does it make it into your dreams? Um, Actually, it hasn't made it into my dreams, surprisingly enough yet. But um, I do think about it a decent amount. I've had like probably 10 to 15 interviews over the last week and a half about Mm -hmm. it. So I've had to recollect it a lot and think about it and talk about it a lot. And um, I've written a couple things about it and done a couple like self-made interviews about it and whatnot. So, you know, I've definitely had time to reflect. And the more I reflect on it, you know, the more I see that it was a very poor decision that day. Thanks so much, Maurice, for sharing your experience. I'm glad you're safe and I appreciate your candor. Thank you so much. You're going to go back out there. Of course. Well, who am I to keep you? Thank you, Maurice. Thank you. Snowboarder Maurice Curvin of Denver survived an avalanche January 8th. After a break, more from our series, The Workforce Behind the Workforce. That's Jenny Brandine's look at early childhood education. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. In 2012, Colorado had a huge wildfire season, and the state government formed a task force to learn lessons and plan a response. But last year, more than twice as many acres burned, and there's been little action on many problems the government identified. Those elected officials were also being contacted by lobbyists. I'm Michael Elizabeth Sackis from the CPR News Climate Team. Listen this week as we look into the backstory and solutions for the new wildfire reality in Colorado, and find our coverage at CPR.org. There's a shortage of early childhood educators, and low pay is part of the problem. Many in the field can't afford to further their education or to take that kind of time off from work. In her series, The Workforce Behind the Workforce, CPR's education reporter Jenny Brundine examines one promising solution, apprenticeships. That's a nice word you use. Can you have that? Would you like that? Thank you for using your words. 36-year-old Vivian Darby is finally where she's supposed to be. The funny, gregarious Colorado native is playing in a big sandbox on a sunny winter day. Is it okay if I join you? She's surrounded by a posse of young children. She sings with them, runs with them, screams with them, gently admonishes them. I see two people on the slide at a time, and I don't think that's safe. And does a whole lot more in the highly complex job of an early childhood educator. In fact, one seminal study says the job is equally complex and requires the same education level and comparable pay to K-12 teachers. But accessing the education needed to succeed in the job is out of reach for many. 
One promising pathway, one that Darby stumbled upon, is the apprenticeship. Apprenticeships are different from simply taking early childhood education classes. First, people have to work while they're learning. That's Julia Brink with Red Rocks Community College's Early Childhood Apprenticeship Program. Every six months, apprentices get a 50-cent-an-hour pay raise from their employer. In a typical two-year program, that's a $2-an-hour raise, significant for the field. But the biggest plus is apprentices have a mentor coach, a senior person from the apprentice's job site. What we know in the field is that they need coaching. They need coaching support. They need somebody to stand side by side with them and say, okay, you just learned this. This is how you put it into practice. That's what apprenticeship helps them with. Vivian Darby liked the real-time feedback. Because she didn't sugarcoat things. So if I really needed direction of, uh, well, that didn't go well for me, how could I have that? She was, you know, great, great, great. The apprenticeship consists of 4,000 hours of experience and 306 education hours. Not everyone has to start at ground zero. Darby was already able to bring in more than half of each of those requirements, shortening her program. The apprenticeship is a good fit for people who just can't quit their jobs to go to school. It also attracts non-traditional learners. As you hear, I have been on a journey with school. After dropping out of high school, Darby got a GED and a credential in electrical construction management. She says going from being on public assistance to that... Man, the money was like, woohoo! But she eventually got laid off. I was like, oh man, well, what do I do now? She went back to school for a diploma in dental assisting and radiology. The job was okay, but not her passion. And so I worked there for about a year and a half, and this is where the excitement comes in, okay? Her mother ran into her best friend from high school, now the owner of Oak Street Child Development Center in Arvada. Darby checked out the place and immediately saw, she says, all the love that she could be giving. She took an entry-level job in 2012, took a few classes to become an ECE teacher. But Darby wanted more. I want to be able to be a mentor and a leader to other people, and so I need to be knowledgeable. Darby's smart and intuitive, but by her own admission, she's not the best book learner. I'm like, okay, Viv, you want to get director certified, you want to have your associates in early childhood education, so now it's like, oh man, but I don't want to go to school no more, but I do want to take in the knowledge and the information. She was nervous about going back to school. But the apprenticeship allowed her to choose the classes she needed most. Red Rocks's Julia Brink believes that and the on-the-job support is key to stemming Colorado's chronically high turnover rates in early childhood education. ECE staff say they're seeing more and more children with challenging behavioral issues, leaving teachers overwhelmed without the skills and training to succeed. What happens is we get burnout. We get teachers that don't know what they're doing, or they're not confident, they don't have a lot of support. And, you know, they're expected to because they they went through this education, but they don't have a lot of additional support. By the end of her apprenticeship, Darby had been promoted to assistant director. Here's Julia Brink. What you are guaranteed through apprenticeship is that the teachers that completed are probably going to stick, right? I mean, they're going to be your quality teachers. Plans to expand the early childhood apprenticeship program to several counties are underway. Jenny Brandine, CPR News. Lumineers co-founder Jeremiah Freights has spent much of the past decade touring with his band. He's primarily known as a drummer, but also plays piano. And you can guess which one he plays most on his new instrumental solo album out this week called Piano Piano. 
Freitz joins us from Turin, Italy. And uh, Jeremiah, nice to talk to you again. Nice to talk to you again as well. Um, I'm very excited. I actually, I actually just moved here to Turin, Italy about two or three months ago. I was in Denver for 11 years and I just moved here. And me and my wife and our son, who's two and a half years old, we've been loving it. And uh, we just finally moved into our new house. And yeah, it's been, it's been an exciting adventure during 2020 into this new year, 2021. Okay, so this is a permanent relocation, which I'll ask you about in just a bit, trying to mourn the loss of you in Denver, I suppose, to some extent. But to this album, uh, you started writing it about a decade ago. Tell me how you started on Piano, Piano. So writing so much music with the Lumineers, me and the singer Wesley, we write all the music together. I just have so many ideas and a lot of them are bad and some of them are cool. And every now and then I write an idea that I just don't think works for the Lumineers catalog, or it might be too true this or true that to add words or sing over. So over the last decade, I've been putting songs into a Dropbox folder. And one of the songs called Nearsighted, I think is as old as 12 or 13 years ago. I was living in Kingston-upon-Thames doing the study abroad aspect of my life. I was 21 and I just come home from a pub. It was probably around one or two in the morning and recorded this guitar on my laptop microphone. And that was just something that stuck around. And I think that was 12 or 13 years ago. And that guitar you hear in the song called Nearsighted is actually the same exact take that I did. these tunes have haunted you? I mean, to, to think of something sticking with you for more than a decade, you know, it's like the, the worst or the best kind of earworm. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I actually named one of the songs on this album, Possessed. They stick around with me and they're always at like arm's length, you know, even if I'm not actively thinking about these song ideas, when I'd open up that Dropbox folder, it was always like going down memory lane. It was almost like opening up a journal or a diary where I could remember writing a snippet of the song idea, maybe in a green room in Boston, Massachusetts, or maybe coming up with something here in Italy, or maybe coming up with something back home in Denver, Colorado. I think for me, writing, it's very hot and cold. It's like, there are some days where I don't even want to look at a piano. The song in particular called Possessed, I wrote while I was watching our son Tommaso. He was you know, watching some cartoons and we were winding down in the evening. And I just had a guitar on my lap and I started playing something and then I transferred that guitar idea over to the piano and the whole song got written in the span of about 15 or 20 minutes, which rarely happens. I'm not trying to make myself come across as some like <laughs> mad genius. <laughs> that never happens. But um, that was one of the cool times that you dig in your backyard. Yeah, sometimes you find gold and most of the time you just find mud and sticks and rocks. But that night I found some gold.
Now, you wrote this album in your home in Denver. Tell me a little bit about that process. I know it began after a Lumineers tour was canceled because of the pandemic. I mean, so you were at home. My wife was actually the one that urged me to do it at home. I had grand plans to record it in a studio and do the whole studio thing. And when my wife said, it seems like we're going to be home for, for months and not just weeks, you should really try to do it in the house. And I thought, well, it's a terrible idea. You know, we have our dog, who's a golden retriever named Spaghetti. He basically kind of like howls and a cute way to describe it is harmonizes or sings when I play the grand piano. At the time, we had a two-year-old in the house and anybody that has a two-year-old knows there's a lot of energy and a lot of noise. And then literally um, next door to us was a house being constructed, being built. So the amount of noise in the house was like absurd to try to record a solo piano album. And when my son would take his nap, I'd have anywhere from an hour to two hours around the middle of the day to uh, record these takes. It just added a lot of pressure to every time I did a take. But I think it made me a stronger musician and self-producer and through those home recordings, I think it was exactly what I was going for. This is an instrumental album. You've written a few instrumentals for the Lumineers albums and done some film scoring as well. Is it less stressful not to have lyrics come into play? I wouldn't say it's less stressful. It just was different. I mean, when Wes and I are writing songs, you always know that he's going to sing over it and we're going to have some lyrics and the lyrics are going to influence the instrumentation and vice versa, the instrumentation that we, the arrangements are going to influence the lyrics potentially. So not having that was its own set of challenges where I had to realize, well, sometimes I just would have these chords that I thought are really beautiful on the piano, but I would tell myself, well, you can't just have a bunch of chords. You got to do something. <laughs> you know, you got to, <laughs> you got to have some sort of melody or you got to have some sort of, something for the listener to attach themselves to. Oh, that's so, fascinating, that because was, if, if you're writing for lyrics, the, the lyrics can carry a piece of music in a way that an instrumental, you know, doesn't have that option. Yeah, exactly. And with the instrumental album, I could do anything, which sets off its own set of paralysis, because like when you can do anything, <laughs> I've always loved that term called option paralysis. And if you have too many options, I sort of like, shut down. So I tried to self-impose some limitations where I made a sort of manifesto, I guess you could call it, before I started recording the first note. And I said, like, don't add too many strings, keep it raw, basically just record what you like. And then I think I added again, don't add too many strings, because I didn't want to fall into what I consider the trap of, you can just throw a bunch of strings on with piano and it will sound lovely. But I wanted to try to maintain some sort of identity. So that was fun, though, too. It was fun to decide, well, is this melody going to come from a string or is this melody going to come from the grand piano? Listening to Colorado Matters, I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest is Lumineers co-founder Jeremiah Freights. 
who has a new debut solo album called Piano Piano. And the track we just heard there is Maggie. Uh, who, who is Maggie? So Maggie actually was my wife and her parents' beloved family dog. And she passed away in 2020. The day that I was mixing the song and knew it was the day we were going to complete the song, which, by the way, gave me easily the most amount of trouble than any other song in the record. Huh. Um, the, her dog uh, passed away over in Italy. I was in Denver finishing the album. My wife texted me and said, you know, her dog had just passed away and her name was Maggie. And I just thought it was a really beautiful kind of fitting, I don't know, tribute, I guess you could say, to her dog. And I love that dog, too. You know, whenever we would go over to Italy, I, I've known that dog for the last six or seven years, going all the way to when we were dating. So my wife told me that when she was dating and if she happened to bring a boyfriend over, the dog would bark, <laughs> even if it was just a friend that happened to be a guy. And the first time I ever went over there about six or seven years ago, uh, she didn't bark at me. So Aww. I think Maggie knew. And, you know, so, I, yeah, it was a nice way to give her tribute, I think. And what kind of dog was Maggie? She was a white uh, Labrador. Jeremiah, is there a pianist, living or dead, who has inspired you? Yeah, there's two. and There's one for each. I mean, the biggest would probably be Beethoven, obviously dead. And when I was little, me and my older brother, that was like the first artist that we got into. He was really into uh, Mozart, and I was really into Beethoven. And we used to argue about who we thought was better. And we were young, too. I think we were like, I don't know, eight or nine years old. And I fell in love with his sonatas, which I think is just a fancy term for just piano of classical music. And yeah, it really just blew my mind what this guy was doing on a piano. And I don't think I've ever fallen out of love with Beethoven stuff. And I would say another huge inspiration would be uh, Chili Gonzalez his style of play and even the way his recordings sound and more importantly, the way they feel, I think it's been a big inspiration to me as well. Chili Gonzalez, C-H-I-L-L-Y. We're going to listen to a little bit of, of him, Grammy-winning Canadian musician indeed, uh, but based in Germany. Gonzalez, an inspiration to our guest, Jeremiah Freitz of the Lumineers, who has a new solo album called Piano, Piano. All right, to this idea that you have bought a house in Turin, Italy, which is a short drive from the Alps, I'll note. I, I wonder if it actually reminds you of Denver at all, where you're so close to the Rockies. Yeah, it's kind of funny. Um, it's very uh, eerily similar with that view of the mountains. I mean... I've been drawn to the mountains. Coming from flat New Jersey, I guess I'm getting my <laughs> mountains, my mountain appeal out of something. How's your Italian? Molto bene. <laughs> I would say it's getting there. It's been very difficult. Torino, I would say, is not an easy place for a tourist that speaks English. 
But I, I actually kind of like that too. I mean, it, it makes it certainly more difficult when you go to the grocery store or, you know, have to go to the bank to do simple things. But I like the challenge and I'm trying to improve my Italian and everybody only pretty much speaks Italian here. So what better way to learn than that? Your bandmate, Wesley Schultz, still calls Denver home. Have, has, has Colorado lost you, Jeremiah Freights? No, <laughs> no, no. Colorado will never lose me. Colorado is, will always be in my heart. And, you know, like I said, I was in Denver for about 11 years and so many wonderful things happened. I met so many wonderful people. Um, we still actually do have our house there in Denver. No, Colorado has not lost me. Well, I'm pleased to hear it. Thanks so much for sharing this music, this art with us, and good luck in the new digs. Oh, thank you so much, Jen. Uh, great talking with you. Thank you. Jeremiah Freitz of Denver band The Lumineers, joining us from his wife's hometown of Turin, Italy. His debut solo album, Piano Piano, is out Friday. And thanks to the band of journalists that makes Colorado Matters possible. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Alexandra McMahon. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner with producers Corey Jones and Daniel Mesher. This is CPR News and KRCC. KRCC.